You're listening to Members of the Jury, the show that takes you straight into the trenches of justice, where the passion, players, and consequences are real. Each episode, we examine current events happening in the system. From the battles in courtrooms to the streets demanding reform, we bring those stories here to you, the members of the jury, because we aren't afraid to take it to the box. Welcome, members of the jury, to another episode. Today's episode is a really important one. It's really current. And it's really dear to my heart specifically. If you've been following along with our prior episodes that you you know here, we're really big on the notion and the constitutional right of exercising your right to jury trial. And right now, during a global pandemic, which is COVID-19, that's not happening. All across the country, people are being deprived of that right. And not only are they being deprived of that right, but they're being forced to sit in custody during pre-trial detainment in facilities that are nesting grounds for COVID-19. These individuals, before ever being convicted, are being forced to sit in the same kind of conditions and parameters that are causing these courthouses to close. And the cause of depriving jury trials from happening are being sentenced to those same conditions. So today we have a guest with me who is a public defender. He's on the front line, but also in his spare time, he's an author. Uh, He's a very talented author. You know, he was a member of his law review uh, in law school, and soon he will actually be publishing an article that deals with this very concept. The concept of engaging in plea deals while being in custody during a pandemic. And he'll explain where you'll be able to review this article, and I highly encourage everyone to do so. But I think more importantly, what we're going to get into today, what we're going to take to the box, is kind of both of our experiences in this pandemic and in this pre-trial detainment where our clients and our experiences have been deprived of that right. So I want to bring in Ryan Cannon into this conversation. He's, the, he's my coworker. He's the author who wrote this article that will be published. And it, he goes into the details of, as to whether or not plea deals are actually voluntary and you know, how someone can decision-making can be deemed voluntary when they're left with the choices of get out now, whether or not you did it, or potentially sit in jail longer than you need to, longer than you'll be sentenced to, just to get that exercise. So Ryan, welcome. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Lucas. It's a pleasure to be here. So Ryan, I think we should just jump right into it. You know, um, well, I guess first, go ahead and let the members of the jury know where and when they'll be able to uh, review this amazing article that you've written. Sure. So the article itself is being published by Northwestern University's Journal of Criminal Law and Criminology Online. It's slated for, I believe, volume 111, which is their upcoming publication um, that I believe is coming out this October. So you can find pre-publication versions of that article on the Social Science Research Network or SSRN.com. You can also find it via my LinkedIn page at Ryan Cannon. 
And again, once that does come out, I, I highly encourage everyone to read it. It's a really good insight, uh, both kind of from just a personal perspective. But Ryan does a really good job of kind of highlighting some of the legal precedent. Um, if you're kind of a legal nerd into how, uh, you know, plea deals came about, what prior appellate courts have ruled as to their validity. Um, but Ryan, I think more importantly, you know, prior to us getting into the studio, we, we talked about actually what led you to writing that article. And I think that that is an amazing story and one that you're willing to share with the members of the jury. And so go ahead and let us know what what caused you to write this article? What was the experience that you dealt with? Sure. And I'll, you know, I'll talk about it in general terms, but I, I have a feeling that this is an experience that a lot of other public defenders around the country have had, um, which is that you have circumstances where an individual might not otherwise be actually guilty of a crime, or might, might not at least believe they're guilty of a crime, but they're put in a circumstance where, they're, where their ability to maintain their own innocence is effectively removed. And so they're left with really only one option, which is to plead guilty um, or stay in jail. And so, you know, the experience that I had, I had a, uh, a particular case uh, that involved what I believed was a gross um, sort of ethical and sort of, you know, a, a, a misconduct allegation against um, a local police agency um, and a specific officer. And I believed based on my um, assessment of the case that that actually presented serious questions as to the factual guilt of my client um, and that this is the kind of charge that he shouldn't plead to, that he should fight this charge and we should air out this misconduct by this officer. But my client, like so many other clients, was at the same time in a circumstance uh, where he, he effectively could not fight his case. So a lot, of, a lot of attorneys have seen this where you have individuals who have um, very strong defenses to a potential case or a charge, but then they're swept again into the criminal justice system uh, because of the same types of reasons that bring a lot of people in the justice system. Drug problems is a very common one of those. Um, it's not uncommon to see a lot of people with uh, drug charges only that keep them in jail, even though those are non-serious, non-violent offenses, not what we would think of as things that would keep someone in jail. And so this client of mine, while having a case that he should have fought, that should have been aired so that the public was aware of what happened, he was back in jail because he could not be released on his own recognizance. A judge refused to do it. And he was essentially in a position of plea guilty to all of the cases that you've got so that you can get out or remain in custody for really an unknown amount of time, an indeterminate amount of time, given the current state of the pandemic in the courthouse. Um, while at the same time, all around him, as there are in almost every custodial setting, rapid and sharp increases in the number of COVID-19 infections. I think there's a, a really key component in, in, under, in unpacking all of that. And that was initially you said when that you were assigned this case and you were able to kind of get your hands on the discovery, your client, especially going into his arraignment, which is their first court appearance, was in custody, right? He was. Um, and because of the facts of the case, I was able to get a judge to actually grant him a release on his own recognizance so that we could fight the case. And that was specifically because I felt like had he been kept in, there would have been so much coercive pressure on him to plead that that would have been his only effective option. But once out, he fell into the same kinds of patterns that 
he had before he picked up the case that I was helping him with, which was he, he had an ongoing drug use problem. And that eventually swept him back into the criminal justice system, back into a cell where a judge was no longer willing to allow him to remain out. Um, and all of his options were effectively taken away from him because of that. Well, and part of the reason, actually, that presumably he was taken back into custody on a low-level drug offense was because when they ran his name, they were able to see that he was out OR on another case uh, and to them, you know, committing another crime. And I think this is a really important moment to explain to like the members of the jury that when you're charged with a crime, there's kind of several different ways that you can kind of go about the system leading up to your arraignment and your first kind of appearance before the judge. I think the most common one, and as we've just talked about, is people get arrested, they get booked into custody, they wait in jail, they spend their two, three, four, five days in custody, and then ultimately they are produced by the sheriffs in front of a judge. You also have two other options where, you know, the officer, whether it be a felony or misdemeanor, felt that it was a nonviolent threat and the officer is able to give what's called a a citation and release. And so that that is considered, uh, you know, an aspect of kind of arrest, even though you're not formally booked, but, you know, you are being ultimately charged with a crime, but they give you a citation with a court appearance and, and you show up. The third option is, you know, the officers believe that you are a danger to society in that instance. And so they do take you through the formal booking process, and then you post bail. And that allows you to be released to then appear for your court date. And what I think needs to be realized is when you are in custody and you do make your first court appearance before a judge, there are some release options that are available to you that are not bail. One that you heard Ryan mention was called OR or release on your own recognizance. And that's when a judge basically says that they're satisfied that this person, based on, you know, numerous factors, will appear again later down the road when they have a future court date and will no longer present a danger to society by going out there and committing other crimes. And from Ryan's experience, he's explaining that when the client first was charged with this crime of punching or uh, uh, getting into some kind of uh, encounter with a police officer, that it was a minimal encounter and that the judge basically allowed him to be released on his own recognizance. And then he was detained and contacted later with some drugs on him. And normally that would be a sight and release, but because he had another case that ultimately led him back into confinement. And that's going to be really important as the story moves forward. And Ryan, I think that's a great point to pick up and explain why was that such a significant decision to take him back into custody, especially during a pandemic for a low level drug offense when they had the ability to continually to just give him another sight and release. And we would have been able to pick up both cases at a later date while he still remained out of custody. So you're absolutely right, Lucas. What turned that case, what, what ultimately led to what resolved that case is what leads to the resolution of a lot of cases, which is pretrial detention. And the enormous coercive impact that that has on individuals and their ability to make rational decisions. And that I think really highlights the problem that I fleshed out in the essay that I wrote, which is that the court's way of assessing an individual's voluntary decisions and and whether they can call that a voluntary choice in a legal sense is very different 
than what we would call a voluntary decision in a cognitive science sense. And what do you mean by that? Well, this, so you have, to, you have to step back for a second and go back in time and start with some of the fundamental plea bargaining cases that were fleshed out by the Supreme Court. And one of those that I'm sure will be very familiar for the attorneys who listen to your podcast, Lucas, um, is Brady v. United States. Brady is a case that touched on a lot of different aspects of the criminal justice system in really fundamental ways. And one question for the court in Brady, and that was subsequently presented to the court over a number of cases between the 1970s and the 1980s, was whether or not an individual's decision to take a plea bargain and admit guilt actually impacts a determination that their admission of guilt is voluntary. And I think that's a really fundamental question that is there on the face of any plea bargain, right? It's an exchange. Um, I'm giving something and I'm getting something. And that raises a whole host of questions about why I'm giving something up. Is it because what I'm giving up is something that I actually want to give up? Am I actually admitting guilt because I believe I'm guilty? Or am I giving something up? Am I admitting guilt in that circumstance because of the enormous pressure that's on me to plead guilty? And because the way in which I analyze that decision is filled with a whole host of cognitive biases that are not really taken into account in a legal sense. I agree 100%. And I think the crazy thing, especially as you were talking, I, I got a visualization of kind of the different conversations that I have with my clients, kind of depending on where they are at or how, so to speak, at time of arraignment. For an out-of-custody client, more oftentimes than not, the first question is, you know, about the case, about the facts, what evidence do they have, um, how are we going to defend this? Within custodies, on a very large number of times, the first question isn't what evidence do they have, what are they charging me with, it's when can I get out of jail? Im immediately. They are not able to critically think about the consequences later ahead, what a conviction might do to them, whether or not they're going to actually be able to uh, comply with the conditions of probations that if they don't could lead them right back in jail. It's such an immediate focus and it's the wrong focus. Well, and I think that's, that's the interesting point, right? You can call it wrong or right, but it's definitely a focus. And it's something that is completely absent from the way in which courts think of a plea as being voluntary. So if you go back to Brady, what, what the standard that's set out in Brady really says is that so long as you are aware of the potential consequences of the choice that you're making, the promises that the judge has made, that the DA has made, that your own attorney has made, and as long as you're aware of the alternative choices that you have available to you, then a court's going to put up their hands and they're going to say, your decision to plead guilty is a voluntary choice. It's a completely voluntary choice. And that makes sense if you assume something very fundamental, which is that the defendant in that context is making rational, strategic choices. And if you go back and you read Brady in a lot of the cases where the Supreme Court justifies the, the practice of plea bargaining, that's the fundamental assumption that they're making, is that defendants, when they're making decisions to plead, that they're essentially, and this is a term of art that's thrown around, bargaining in the shadow of trial that they're assessing the potential strength of their case at trial, the consequence of losing at trial against the consequence of taking a plea deal. And with those fundamental factors known and being rationally weighed, 
they make a strategic decision to maximize their own utility. This is the way in which courts think that defendants are actually making plea bargain decisions. And that, as you pointed out, is very different from the actual plea bargaining process and what attorneys see when they actually sit down with a client who's in custody. They're not asking immediate questions of, well, how strong is my case? What am I going to get if I lose a trial? And what am I getting from this plea deal? Um, and that's because of the way in which people naturally assess risk and make decisions like that, which is that there are, you know, our decision-making processes are filled with a whole host of cognitive biases that we now know about, that cognitive science is aware of at this point, um, that really you know, impair our ability to make rational decisions. I'll give you just three great examples of this. So the first one is called framing, and this is borne out in actual studies related to plea bargaining, which is that if you present a plea bargain to a defendant, but at the same time you tell them that that plea bargain is better than the plea bargain that another defendant got for a similar charge, they are much more likely to take that plea bargain, right? And that's because framing this idea that we don't approach decision-making from an objective neutral starting point, but from a subjective frame that oftentimes is completely disconnected from what we might think should drive that decision, the strength of your case, the strength of your defense, the potential consequences of going to trial and the potential consequences of that plea deal. Instead, all of a sudden, what you're focusing on because of this cognitive bias is whether you're getting something that was slightly better than what someone else similarly situated to you got. So that's a, that's a great example. And here's another one, and one that I'm sure that you've seen a lot as well, Lucas. I think this is very prevalent in misdemeanor practices, which is the discounting of downstream consequences, right? The immediate decision to plead guilty, particularly to a misdemeanor, might not seem all that consequential. But that's because we are very bad at weighing consequences that are later in time, whether that's um, you know, your ability to maintain public services, like at Section 8 housing, your ability to get financial aid for schooling, your ability to even remain in the country. Legally. Your ability to vote. These are things that are much, your ability to vote, they're much harder to think of when they're downstream from the immediate decision that we make. And that's another cognitive bias that we all deal with all the time, but is not reflected in this idea of a rational defendant entering into a voluntary plea. And so the last one I'll leave you with is the same one that I focus on in the paper, which is baselining, and that I think relates directly to pretrial detention. So baselining is sort of similar to framing in the sense that it recognizes that we assess decisions based on a subjective starting point. And the example you gave is perfect, right? A person who's in jail is going to view a no custody probation offer much differently than someone who's out of jail. Because for a person out of jail, Pleading guilty to that no custody probation officer or probation offer doesn't actually change their baseline. They're already out of jail, right? So there's not much of an actual benefit for them psychologically in taking that plea deal. But put that person in jail. Now their baseline is not a non-custodial setting. It's a custodial setting. And a significant change in that baseline from going from custody to out of custody is likely to override really, you know, some of the most important, what we would think of the most important factors that should drive a plea bargaining process, namely, first and foremost, whether or not you actually believe you're guilty or innocent. Well, and I think in COVID is really highlighting 
how that that is so flawed, you know, because normally if you're denied OR, if you can't afford bail and you're in pretrial confinement, you have the law on your side, which says, hey, if you're going to keep me confined before I've been convicted, we have to go to trial within a certain period of days. And that changes, you know, mostly depending on where you are. But right now, that has been thrown in the trash. And the amount of days that they're saying that you would have to wait in pretrial confinement in order to fight your case. But it's it's crazy now, though, with COVID and, and pretrial detentions, because you're having judges on the most nonviolent, lowest offenses, for whatever reason, denying OR, and telling individuals, you're going to have to sit in jail without being convicted for at least six months now. And especially at the misdemeanor level, that's longer. They would be serving more time or the maximum amount of time that is, comes with the charge before they're ultimately able to fight it. And how we as a criminal justice, parentheses around justice, system can say, look, you know, we're basically going to tie both your hands behind your back and you have to fight us or, you know, we won't beat you down that bad. And, and so how it, it puts these people in a, a position, to, especially during a pandemic where it's like, you know, you could get out in a couple of days or a couple of weeks, you know, minimize your risk of essentially getting COVID or you could fight it, risk your chances of, of getting COVID or just doing more time than you would need to. I think that it totally flips what the normal course and the issues with plea bargains in a whole new direction and creates a completely different kind of attitude. Like not only is this necessarily pre-trial confinement, because some of the steps that they're doing in these facilities to comply with the guidelines and trying to minimize the the spread of COVID in the jails is worse punishment than even just being in there. You know, I know you talk about it in your paper how in some facilities they have to um, resort to solitary confinement of individuals just to keep the separation. And for those who don't know, solitary confinement for any period of time can have extraordinarily negative effects on your mental capabilities and is known drastically to create mental health issues. You know, that's one of the reasons specifically it was outlawed for juveniles. And so to even rationalize, hey, you haven't been convicted yet, but you're going to have to sit in solitary confinement to for however long to potentially not contract COVID. But because you can't afford bail or get out, what what do you want to do? Do you want to take this deal? And the de- the plea dealing now without the leverage of jury trial is honestly just, OK, prosecutor, pick a date. What arbitrary number of days is satisfactory to you to let him out from this godforsaken death trap of a custody facility? And so I think your your article couldn't have come at a better time. It couldn't have been more appropriate to raise awareness to this issue because it is happening all over. And, you know, plea deals in and of, in and of themselves call should be called into question. But plea deals during COVID um, really need to be looked at under a microscope. And I know you and I are both have been on a fight day to, uh, almost every day in the trenches talking about how, you know, the scales of equity, especially as it relates to OR and pretrial release, need to be accounted for. And simply saying, well, you know, the jails are following the protocols and there aren't that many cases in the jail, 
that that's not upholding the justice that that is in my opinion a direct violation of cruel and unusual punishment but and i guess this is a great segue because i know in your in your article you mentioned how courts have basically don't consider pretrial confinement a form of punishment so why don't you why don't you pick up on that sure so if you kind of if you followed the natural line of the story that we had laid out before all right, this individual who's in jail, who's faced with a decision to plead guilty um, and get released from pretrial detention or stay in and be left sitting while the, you know, the pandemic is raging throughout the custodial settings um, and while they have no reasonable chance of getting to a jury trial with any amount of time, you might think that the law should take into consideration those particular confinement conditions when we're assessing whether or not that person's subsequent plea is actually voluntary. And you might even think that if you were that person that pled guilty to get released, that you should then be able to turn around and say to the court, you know what, the only reason I pled was to get out of a jail in which I was exposed to a high risk of contracting a fatal illness, and I want to take that plea back. But for a lot of your listeners, they're going to be disappointed. That's not exactly the way that the law shakes out. And it does so for two kind of particular reasons. So the first is the actual assessment of the voluntary plea itself and the way that that standard is set up under Brady and really doesn't take into account the particular coercive impact that confinement conditions have. But even if they did, and that gets right to what you were just raising, you'd have another problem, which is that your right to be free from these kinds of confinement conditions is kind of difficult to justify legally speaking. So what's interesting to note is that your right to a certain level of confinement conditions is that is not actually governed by the uh, prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment. Because if you read the law on this, and it kind of makes sense from a logical standpoint, punishment is meted out to an individual who's been found guilty or admitted guilt. And so if you're pretrial, you can't really be subject to the standards of the cruel and unusual punishment clause because you are not being punished. Pretrial detention is not, technically speaking, legally speaking, a form of punishment. So really what that's governed by is the due process clause. And the standard that's set under the due process clause out of the Supreme Court as it relates to pretrial confinement conditions is one that is incredibly deferential to the needs of custodial facilities. And this is really part of a bigger trend in the law that you see, which is that courts oftentimes defer to the needs and the justifications that are put out by actual prison officials. So what this pretrial confinement standard essentially says is that so long as the jail can, you know, create a reasonable link, reasonable link is the standard, a reasonable relation between the confinement condition itself and a legitimate just on its face, penological goal, it's going to be constitutional. There's, there's a huge amount of deference embedded in that standard. And you can compare it to a, you know, a potentially different standard, one that was actually contemplated in a famous uh, plea bargaining or, or confinement conditions case, where a number of uh, inmates pre-trial sued related to certain confinement conditions that they were experiencing, um, namely restrictions on their access to reading materials and books, suspicionless cavity searches and searches of their rooms. And so in taking up this question, the Supreme Court says, well, because the standard is not one 
in which we should be looking really deeply into the justifications of the uh, prison officials. It's not one in which we would need a compelling necessity, which is the standard that was set by the lower court. Really, all we need is to make sure that the agency themselves, the custodial facility, is just reasonably related. That, that confinement condition is reasonably related to the actual penological goal. And so you can see a lot of ways in which the current um, pandemic and the confinement conditions people are experiencing arguably would be reasonably related to certain penological goals. The one that you just mentioned is a great example of that, solitary confinement. It, it would probably be pretty easy under that lax standard for, an, for a custodial agency that was sued to say, you know what, it was the only way to quarantine an individual to keep that pandemic from spreading to others. We had to put them in solitary confinement. And under the current legal standard that's set by the court, they would probably say that that means it's constitutional. But Ryan, I know that there's naysayers and people out there that are going to say, well, if we can't detain them pre-trial, what is the alternative? We, we can't simply let them out. Crime rates are going to go up. We have to have some kind of bail system. Otherwise, neighborhoods are going to be flooded with crime. You know, and that's, that's a line that you hear very consistently if you keep up with criminal justice reform efforts. And um, so what you actually see when you dig into the data related to early release, um, a reduction in pretrial detention, um, is that there aren't correlative increases in uh, violent or serious crimes. Now, that doesn't mean that there are no increases in crimes. And there is a legitimate need on the part of the courts to assure attendance, right, by individuals charged with crimes. And you and I spoke about that briefly um, just a little while ago, that really this gets at a fundamental question, which is what is a court supposed to do with an individual who has a demonstrated history of not coming to their court dates? And right now, the way the current argument is framed is that the only option that the court has is to put that individual in jail, to um, put them into pretrial detention, to assure that they will always come to every court date that they're assigned. But oddly enough, that's also not necessarily reflected in the myriad kinds of pretrial detention and um, release supervision services that are offered throughout the country. One great exception to that idea that the only other option is to put them in jail is Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. has gone through a number of serious pretrial detention reform efforts. They have invested very heavily in their um, probation and their supervision departments. And they've instituted really even just simple um, psychological mechanisms that they have found actually help ensure attendance in courts. One easy example of this is regular court notifications of upcoming court dates. What's one of the most common reasons, Lucas, that we hear from, from clients when we see that they've failed to come to court a time and time again? 100% the top two are, I forgot the date or I came on the wrong date or I didn't have a, I didn't have a ride. Exactly. Washington, D.C. has invested heavily um, in a system that they believe in is actually borne out by the data, actually ensures higher court attendance by simple things like notifications of upcoming court dates to your cell phone, to your email address, phone calls, that kind of thing, um, by trying to create a system that makes it easier for individuals to actually travel 
to, to the court system. So if you have an upcoming court date, maybe you can get a voucher or a bus pass from the court to ensure your attendance. It's simple things like that that oftentimes get lost in the discussion of, well, what do we do with someone who has a demonstrated history of not coming to court? Well, we must put them in jail. There are actual ways that you can um, try to ensure that they'll show up when they're supposed to without putting them in jail and imposing on them the massive coercive effect of pretrial detention. Yeah, I think just solving, for sure, solving those two issues with regards to, you know, our clients and the indigent population would have a insane effect as to people, you know, coming to court more often and being more likely to be released on their own recognizance should they be charged with a crime. I mean, simply not having the the prior records of failures to appear, which by and large part is the number one thing I think in people's records that keep them detained pre-trial is because it shows that they have an inability to come back to court. But that inability to come back to court can potentially be easily remedied. And if taxpayers are going to pay for people to be in jail pre-trial, I think some of that money, if not all of that potential money, could be going into those services to at least, instead of saying it's probably cheaper, and we, it, it reduces the, the jail population. Well, Ryan, I, I really appreciate you coming onto the show, giving us an insight into what I said was an amazing article. I really just encourage all of our listeners to go and have a read when it is published. We, it's an important issue. We appreciate you bringing it to the box, and thanks so much for coming. Well, members of the jury, that's our show, and I rest my case. Be sure to come back next episode as we take another matter to the box. If you're a fan of the show, go ahead and subscribe. You can also find us on social media at members of the jury. If you want to be a guest or have any feedback, be sure to email us at lhursty at membersofthejurypod.com. The information in this podcast is provided as general reference work as a public service. The audience is advised to check for changes to current laws and to consult with a qualified attorney on any legal issue. The use of this material does not create an attorney-client privilege in any fashion with the podcast, the host, or the guest. This information is for educational purposes only, and no one affiliated with the podcast may be held liable for any decision made based on this information.